15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Thanks for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast. My name is Andrew Dunkley and joining me as always is astronomer at large because he's got a very large brain. It's Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Uh, hello to you too. Um, yeah, sometimes it's bigger than others, I have to say. <laughs> Never mind. That's all right. Well, it's not about I mean, the size. It's about the, um, the grey stuff. Yes, exactly right. And and we've um, we're doing something different this week. We're uh, we, we, this this whole episode is dedicated to audience questions, which we do from time to time. We've got a whole batch that we want to get through. Uh, a few audio questions, uh, uh, a couple of uh, written questions, but also questions from a live studio guest, uh, Russell Palmer from Western Australia. Russell, hello, hello everyone, welcome. It's great to be here. I'm blown away to be uh, invited on the show as Chief Inquis Inquisitor today. Chief Inquisitor. We will probably do this from time to time now that we have the technology and uh, you're the first uh, cab off the rank, the, the guinea pig, to see if this will all work uh, for us. But, uh, yeah, we thought it uh, would be nice for uh, the audience, uh, particularly those on YouTube, to, um, to, to see another face besides ours. I mean, they must be getting sick of us. Um, <laughs> A couple of <laughs> spectacled old men sitting here just uh, talking rubbish most of the time. Yeah, uh, Russell, have, uh, go on. You could have done better than mine, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we will get to you shortly and uh, have um, you and Fred have a bit of a discussion about a few uh, of the things that are uh, buzzing around in your in your brain. We're also going to hear from Evan in Sydney on the orbit of planets. Simon wants to know when a black hole is in fact a black hole. When does the stuff that goes into it become black hole. Uh, Martin from the UK is asking about light or when there won't be any in the universe, which is, you know, pretty morbid. Thanks, Martin. Appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, Sandy in Melbourne asking about uh, what happens when he looks at the International Space Station from Earth and it's orbiting and it's blinking on and off. Um, I'm guessing it's not nav lights. But uh, we will tackle all of those questions on this edition of Space Nuts. Thanks again for joining us. So, Fred, oh, by the way, how are you? I okay. haven't had a chance for a chin wag. Still alive. Yeah, all good. That's good. <laughs> you know, when... Um, you know, before when we started and I told you that I, I rang Hugh and um, he would call? I call right in the middle. There you go. <laughs> Hang on. I've, I've put him off. There we go. <laughs> Um, so let's uh, get into our first question. Uh, this one is from Evan in Sydney, who's asking about uh, a, a question of a, a, a segment we did uh, a little earlier, uh, about a week ago, I think it was, uh, about the orbit of planets. And uh, here's his question now. Hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Evan from Sydney. In today's podcast, Fred described a planetary system where many planets were in orbital resonance. This means that the planets must tug on each other at regular intervals. In our solar system, the spacing of the planets was described by Johann Bode and means that most of the planets are not in resonance. Which arrangement is more stable in the long term? Thank you. Okay. Um, yes. Thank you, Evan. Um, Fred, over to you, <laughs> as always. Well, yeah, actually what Evan 
uh, refers to there is something called Boda's Law. Uh, Johannes Boda was uh, an astronomer who worked at the end of the 18th century. Uh, but the idea that he put forward had been proposed earlier by a man whose first name I can't remember, but his second name was Titius, um, uh, to reckon with. And um, that says that effectively... If you, with a little bit of numerical tinkering, uh, each planet is twice as far away as the previous one. It doesn't quite fit that, but it's something like that. Um, and that's what caused people to look for the first asteroid uh, that was found, Ceres, back in 1801. Uh, people were looking for the missing planet because the uh, titius Boda law has a gap uh, where... Uh, series, just about where Ceres is. And so when it was found, everybody said, oh, that's great. This is a real thing. This law, it works. There's a planet where it was predicted to be. And actually, um, in fact, it had already had a, a, a good, uh, you know, a good tick before that, because in 1781, when Uranus was discovered, that was found to be where the titius Boda law predicted it would be. So it's getting very bawdy, Fred. Yeah, it, it, well, that's right. It's just a, you know, it's a long, drawn-out tale. Um, mm. But it's not, these are not planetary resonances. They're, um, in fact, there's really, the present view is that there's no physical reason why that should be, that it's, it's something like a coincidence. Uh, although I find it a bit suspicious when you've got a law that seems to work reasonably well. We've never seen it as it's stated in the solar system, in, um, you know, in, a, in an exoplanetary system. But what we have seen is what we were talking about last time, which was the resonances. So you've got these very uh, strict ratios of uh, planetary periods, the time it takes to go around uh, one planet to another. And there was a resonance chain that we talked about with, a, with an exosystem whose name I can't remember. I think it was an HD star that it was around Henry Draper star. Um, and I think it was something like 18963. I can't remember the resonances, but they were, you know, th these are integral numbers. Um, the only th there are things like that in the solar system. In fact, uh, there are resonances in three of the moons of Jupiter. Uh, there is a resonance between Neptune and many other um, Kuiper Belt objects, including Pluto. Pluto goes around uh, twice in three times Neptune's orbit. Um, so those resonances are real things. Resonances are real things, and it's exactly as uh, as Evan said. Uh, when you know when the planets line up, they get a kick. Uh, they, they 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 pull on each other, and that's what causes the resonances in the first place. And it's also what makes them stable. So Evan's question is, which arrangement is more stable in the long term? And it's the resonant, you know, the resonant situation. Uh, maybe in a few billion years' time, we'll find that the orbits of the planets in the solar system have got more resonances, but it's, it's, the resonances typically are found in the smaller objects, like Pluto, uh, because they're, you know, they're, they're easier to, for the gravitational pull to shift them into, into the relevant orbits. So it, it sounds to me like this, this um, relationship between some of these orbiting bodies is a natural state and... Um, yeah. Very, very common by the sound of it. Uh, it brings into question the mysterious planet Nine. Uh, <laughs> if it's out there, uh, whether or not it's a whole planet or a whole bunch of smaller uh, objects, um, they too may well be in resonance or developing that kind of orbital pattern, would they not? Um, 
the, the thing about Planet Nine is, you know, its orbital period is uh, it's well over a thousand years, and mm. so um, that means, you know, it's it's only gone round four million times or something, <laughs> and that might. I'm doing this in my head at the moment. That might um, that might mean that you've got uh, not enough gravitational interaction, especially at that distance. It's at a huge distance from the sun if it exists. So my guess is that there wouldn't be many resonances found, although, um, you know, the reason why people think Planet Nine is there is because of the elongation of the orbits of some of the... <clears throat> some of the... Um, the, the um, the trans-Neptunian objects to give them their proper name. The trouble is this, you can say Kuiper Belt objects, but Kuiper Belt objects are different from scattered disk objects, and they're different from resonant objects, so um, it's best just to say trans-Neptunian objects, and that's what they are. In fact, they're actually, technically, they're called ETNOs, extreme trans-Neptunian objects, the ones that are aligned. Uh -huh. I'll okay. Up. I'm letting that one go through to the Kuiper... <laughs> I, I can't. I can't do it again. Uh, talking about the naming of objects by astronomers, they really need to engage a consultant. I think, uh, Evan. Thank you very much for your uh, question. Um, as always, appreciated. Let's uh, move on to our next question, and this one comes from uh, Simon in Melbourne. Uh, this is uh, like black holes are a very um, common area that people want to know about. I guess because of uh, the mystery surrounding them, we don't know a lot. But um, Simon's come up with an angle that uh, I don't think we've actually answered fully in the past. So let's find out what uh, he wants to know. Hey, Andrew and Fred. Thanks for taking my question. It's Simon here from Melbourne. I've just got a quick question about the kind of production of black holes and more specifically the exact moment that normal material becomes a black hole. It might be more of a mathematical question or a theoretical mathematical question. But if you've got a material which is not a black hole, but on the very edge of becoming a black hole, and then you put a little bit more mass into it or shrink the size of it, I'm more kind of asking what happens at the exact moment that material turns from being what we would perceive to be normal matter and into a black hole? I assume this is a one-way transition and simply taking a little bit more of the matter away if you were to hypothesize doing that, would it then not become a black hole? Although I appreciate this is not possible because nothing can escape a black hole. But if you're balancing right on the edge of the black hole and normal matter, I'm just wondering kind of what the, the physicality of this would be and maybe maybe the mathematics associated with it. So to summarize, if we've got normal matter and we pop a little bit more material in there and then it becomes a black hole, how does the transition work? Love the show. I uh, hope you guys are doing well, and we'll look forward to hearing your answer. Okay. Thank you, Simon. Uh, when does matter become part of a black hole? Uh, is, is it an instantaneous thing, Fred, or are we talking something that happens gradually? Um, the short answer is it's effectively instantaneous. Um, and, and it's not, you know, that there are... When when a when a star undergoes a gravitational collapse, it's actually the core of the star. The envelope is kind of blasted off usually uh, as a supernova explosion. So you've got this core, um, which uh, has if its mass is more than about two point. Well, let, let's do it in stages. If its mass is is about the same as the sun's mass, it'll collapse to be a, a, a white dwarf star, which 
uh, is a state of matter. It's not normal matter by any means, uh, but it's not a black hole either. That's where the electrons, it's just the outward pressure of the electrons that's stopping it from collapsing further. And so that's balancing the force of gravity. If it's bigger than 1.4 times the mass of the sun, then uh, the electron pressure isn't enough to, to stop the collapse. Uh, and the collapse will turn into a neutron star, where it's the neutron pressure that's, that's basically pushing things apart. Um, um, those those st different stages, uh, you know, as I said, they're, they're not normal matter. Um, and it, it's that collapse is instantaneous. What's stopping the collapse in a normal star is the outward pressure of the radiation. But when that switches off, then gravity takes over, and gravity is all-powerful. It's the, you know, even though it's the weakest of the four fundamental forces, it's a force to be reckoned with. And so that's what pulls down them down to these degenerate states of matter. Uh, if it's more than we think at the moment, it's 2.2 times the mass of the sun, um, some people say about three, but there was some work done last year that looks like 2.2, then the collapse doesn't stop. Uh, and in an instant, literally in an instant, it goes into a singularity and you've got a black hole. So uh, it's not a gradual process. Um, and it's also not a process that you could take normal matter and add a bit to it because um, if, if you did that, uh, well, you'd get a white dwarf. <laughs> you'd get electron de degenerate matter, as it's called. So, um, so, but, but the bottom line is it's a very rapid process uh, and not, not something that... I'm saying we've never observed it, and the odds, are, you know, we we we've, we see supernovae occurring, um, and when you get this brilliant flash of light that out, outshines its host galaxy, what you know is happening, if it's a massive enough star, is the formation of a black hole, um, but you can't see that bit. <laughs> Maybe in time we'll have. Uh, gravitational wave detectors that are sufficiently accurate to detect that. The problem with a black hole when it collapses is it's it's symmetric. It's a symmetric collapse, and that doesn't produce a gravitational wave signal. But if you've got one that's got slightly more matter on one side than the other, then it would, uh, a star in, in that case. There you go. <laughs> it's all getting very complicated, Fred. It's terribly complicated, you know. That's why we're here. Yeah, I mean, black holes, once they're formed, become quite hungry and in anything nearby gets, as uh, you said, spaghettified. Um, what happens to that matter? It, yeah, it just becomes part of the black hole. That's the, you know, the interesting so thing. So it adds, it adds to its wealth. It adds to it its mass. <laughs> it doesn't mm. add to its volume because that is um, zero, essentially, uh, in a true black hole. There might be weird black holes that it's not but it's zero by definition uh, in a true black hole. So uh, the mass, the volume doesn't change, but the mass goes up. Yeah. Okay. My brain hurts now. Uh, but uh, thank you, Simon. Hopefully that um, uh, answered your question, as we say, adequately. Uh, now, um, we've got uh, plenty more to come. <laughs> Sorry? This show is its the hallmark of space nuts, adequate. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, what what uh, makes me smile, Fred, is people are now referring to themselves as space nuts. Yeah, good on them. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've created a monster. Mm. Hmm. Anyway, you are listening to the Space Nuts podcast, and if you're a YouTuber, you uh, are also watching us, I'm sorry to say.
Uh, with Andrew Dunkley, Fred Watson, and our special guest today is Russell Palmer. Space Nuts. Thanks for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson and Russell Palmer, our special guest. We'll get to Russell in a moment. Just wanted to remind you that uh, if you want to become a patron, uh, that's easy to do. Just go to our website and uh, click on the Support Space Nuts button and you can find out how to become a patron. You can do that through Patreon. You can do it through Acast, which is our uh, prime carrier for the podcast. You can do it through Supercast and there are all sorts of packages and options available. It's not expensive. It's not mandatory either, but we do uh, want to reach a point in time where the podcast is fully supported by the audience and so becoming a patron is the way to do that and it can cost you as little as three dollars a month but if you want to um, buy in uh, for for a year you can do that and we've had a couple of people do it uh, in the last week or so so thank you to you it's just um, just fantastic um, Ashley is one of those. Uh, we got a, a lovely email from Ashley. We answered uh, his question a couple of weeks ago uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, nine-year-old, and um, uh, Ashley has used his pocket money to pay for a one-year subscription to um, the Space Nuts podcast, which I think is fantastic. I feel terribly guilty for taking your money, Ashley. <laughs> but uh, look, I uh, it's great to have a fan who's who's so thrilled with the podcast that he's willing to do that. So uh, thanks, Ashley. It's uh, it's fantastic. We've got another question from you, which we will try and get to in in coming episodes. But um, that is awesome. But if you'd like to become a patron, uh, that is um, easy to do. Just go to our website, spacenutspodcast.com, Click on the support space nuts uh, button and go from there if if you so desire. We do want to try and get to a thousand patrons because then we can. Be Become self-sustaining, which is the whole goal, and um, just uh, keep on producing the program for as long as we possibly can until a black hole comes along and really <laughs> deals with all that. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Russell Palmer. Russell is a space nut, uh, has Sorry. been listening to us for uh, for quite some time, uh, five or ten minutes now, I think it is. And um, Russell is our first live studio guest, uh, and... Uh, Russell, I think I should ask you firstly where your interest in space science, astronomy and astrophysics all came from. The questions you've sent us are not only many, but they are very, very... Insightful. I'll use the word complicated because they are to me. Where did it all start for you? It started, Andrew, in my uh, in 1973 when I was doing my honours year as a physicist at Monash University in Melbourne. And my project there was uh, on a telescope which had been donated to the university. It was called the Jeffrey Telescope, 16-inch Newtonian. And uh, I think it's still situated out at Emerald. My job was to work on the standardisation of a UBV photometer on that. But that that job or that um, period of my life got me hooked on astronomy. I've been very interested ever since. I pursued a career in the uh, in the Air Force, and uh, and subsequently on uh, I've worked as a diver, and um, and now I'm still working for a mining company, uh, adjusting schedules to take care of breakdowns and things like that. So, oh, wow. yeah, my job is, is uh, I think I review, I regard myself as a trained problem solver. 
and uh, that is still my job. Fantastic. So, oh, wow. Well, we, we suspected you were an astute fellow, and given your um, educational history, it's uh, not surprising uh, when we receive your questions that they uh, they seem so uh, very involved. And uh, what part of WA are you in? Is it Bunbury? Um, in well, very close to Bunbury, about thirty kilometres down the road uh, in Donnybrook. And, oh, that's uh, right. But we're far enough out of all the towns to have beautiful, clear skies here. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, great place. Okay, Russell, um, Fred is eager, willing, and hopefully able to deal with uh, some of the things you, you want resolved. So fire away with your first question. Well, I, I just want to say I'm totally blown away to be on this show and uh, fantastic <laughs> to be invited. But uh, this question really, it's Fred's fault. Um, <laughs> he... Uh, he mentioned a few things which got me thinking. So I want to talk about the role of, uh, of quantum fluctuations in the expanding universe. And um, I, I have to read some of this. It's a bit complicated, as you say, uh, and I just hope I can do an interesting job like Stuart Gary does. So anyway, when I was young, space was the big nothing up there. But um, come to learn that space is not nothing. It has some remarkable properties, in fact. It, it uh, sets a speed limit on all things um, and space transmits light in all directions at the same speed, no matter how you're looking at it or how fast you're going. And uh, space is incredibly elastic. It, uh, it went from nothing at the start of the Big Bang to the humongous thing it is now. It gets screwed up by quickly rotating massive objects, but it never rips, never tears. And it, and it can um, hold black holes of infinite density in a single point. So it's, it's amazingly elastic. Um, and space supports quantum fluctuations. So all of space can do all these things. It's not a, a, a localised thing. It's a, a uniform. All these properties of space are uniform. So when Fred explained the way black holes evaporate by one of a virtual pair of quantum of uh, producing a quantum fluctuation, removing the energy of its creation in the real universe from the black hole. This gave me an idea that space may have yet another property, and that is a cosmic binding energy as part of the fabric of space. So it may help to look at the cause of the expansion of space the other way around to what we've been doing. So quantum fluctuations are not just near the event horizons of black holes, they're everywhere. And all of space is filled with them. He's the only got four pages to go, Fred. Half a page more, but it's, <laughs> it's thick writing. <laughs> Virtual particles of matter and antimatter are believed to be created spontaneously without a source of energy. But this violates the conservation of energy for anything that lasts longer than the un uncertainty principle emits. So is it possible that the energy is borrowed from space itself for the brief interval of their existence and is given back to space when the particles annihilate? The cumulative effect of these particles are measurable and we need to account for them. So could the cumulative energy which these virtual pairs borrow for their moment of, of near existence 
add up to the loss of some of the binding energy of space itself. So at any one time, there's a certain amount of this energy being taken out of space by umpteen squillions of these uh, virtual pairs. Uh, so this ongoing temporary loss of some of the binding energy would allow the fabric of space to disperse, not be pushed apart, but dispersed. Um, it wouldn't be pushed apart by an ever-increasing dark energy, which is another violation of the conservation of energy, but would simply be dispersing through the cumulative loss of some of space's binding energy. So when viewed in this way, the expansion of the universe, or which is the total space, is consistent with a brief period of cosmic inflation when most of the matter in the universe was created in the Big Bang. This would mean that the Big Bang has never stopped. It's still going on. The expansion of space is simply uh, the Big Bang ongoing with the creation of substantial matter from space having been largely replaced by the temporary creation of virtual matter. This theory does away with two violations of the conservation of energy present in quantum fluctuation theory and dark energy theory. It explains the expansion of the universe away from other binding forces through the well understood second law of thermodynamics, or, you know, which is uh, what do we call it? Um, anyway, the, the second law of thermodynamics acting on the relaxing fabric of space. It explains the acceleration of the universe, uh, the, of the universe's expansion through the action of quantum fluctuations in an ever-increasing volume of space. And it recognises the relationship between the cosmic inflationary period of the uni early universe and, uh, and the creation of matter. Uh, well, Fred, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think that's too hard, and we go to the next question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what you're saying is, uh, it does have some resonances, I think, with um, some of the work that uh, particle physicists do on this problem. You know, it's all about looking for the the nexus, the the, the, the connection between these two disparate theories that govern the universe, quantum, quantum mechanics and general relativity. And so there's a huge amount of work that's been going on ever since both those two theories appeared uh, on trying to reconcile them. And certainly a, a lot of what you're saying um, is the, it's the sort of thing that the, the particle physicists say when I'm talking to them. I'm not a particle physicist, so uh, I, whilst I listen with great interest. But I think the, 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 the approach that you're taking, I think when you do the, um, the mathematics, um, I think it's the same as the, the one, and, it, and it's all about um, quantum fluctuations. If you, if you go down that path and you look at the um, you know, the, the net result of that on a large scale, you get an answer for the expansion of the universe that is 10 to the power 120 times too big. Um, <laughs> it, 
it's considered to be the worst prediction of theoretical <laughs> physics because, um, you know, it, it, the universe would have ripped itself apart within the first microsecond if that was the case. And so it's an avenue, I think, that has, um, a lot of people have stumbled over and, uh, and they're the ones who are putting the mathematics into it and, you know, that's something that certainly um, the mathematics of quantum theory I know it involves uh, uh, Hilbert spaces, which are an abstract ab ab algebra construct. <laughs> and I dealt with things like that when I was an undergraduate, and they did my brains in, Andrew, just like a lot of this stuff is yours in. Uh, but um, the yeah, so that the, the mathematics don't work out. That's the the problem. Uh, you, you're probably aware of the Casimir force as well, which is a, a, a force of the vacuum it, itself. Uh, and it's demonstrated. You can, you can show that if you've got two two plates in a vacuum uh, and bring them close together, they will actually repel. And it's because of these quantum fluctuations taking place uh, in the in the gap between them. Uh, so there are there there is experimental work done on that experimental understanding. Um, but I think it's the people who've looked at this kind of thing. I think have have had problems with this ridiculous number 10 to the power 120 times too big it's really quite embarrassing that's why we don't talk about it on space notes because we're embarrassed enough already with dark matter and dark matter. <laughs> yeah that, that that repelling force you mentioned i, I have uh, the same effect when i'm holding money <laughs> it just leaves um but look it, uh, I, what i would do rusty is um I think you'll find oh, that's a terrible. I hate saying that. <laughs> it reminds me of old men telling me about that. <laughs> so I think you'll find it's a 259cc engine, not a 300cc. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, but you will find plenty of uh, material on the web, and mostly from physics departments around the world where they've looked at this kind of problem. Um, one other thing I, I like in your question is how incredibly flexible space is. And it is, you're right, uh, it bends. However, by terrestrial standards, uh, it's not. The, um, and you will know what the Young's modulus is. It's the amount of stretchiness in, um, usually measured in a wire. So the Young's modulus of space, it's how flexible it is effectively is 100 billion, billion times uh, stiffer than steel. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's pretty rigid. And that's why it takes, you know, huge gravitational masses to bend it at all. Um, but of course, when you're next to a black hole where you've got this incredible gravitational pull, it does seem very, very flexible, enough to, to spaghettify anything as well. <laughs> Great mm. stuff, though. Uh, I love yeah, all this. fabulous. I, I wish... Um, I wish I'd taken more notice of quantum physics when I was at uni. Uh, and it, I have to say, a lot of that went right over my head in those days. But, of course, this was back in 1965. So. <laughs> there you go. I had other things on my mind then. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I think I had porridge on my face at that point in time <laughs> or something. Yeah. Anyway, uh, how did you go, Russell? Did, did you sort that one? Was it adequate? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll have a look and see if I can, you know, find anything that's that's comparable with what you're describing and um, this tenth of power, one hundred and twenty, where that comes from. Mm. The numbers are incredible. Um, 
You probably know I'm writing a book for kids at the moment, uh, for the 8 to 12 year group, and that suits me very well because I think that's about the level I am. Uh, and that's So I've had to look up things like how flexible space is. I've had to check out all these figures, which is why they're all in front of my mind. <laughs> I'm not going to mention the 10th of power 120, though. That's just too embarrassing. <clears throat> okay. Uh, now, Rusty, did you have any more that you wanted to bring up? I have some more, and I have to say a bit more mundane questions, but... Um, well, we might still we can tackle one or two, time permitting. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, this one's about the search for Planet Nine, which has already come up in the program, so uh, I guess it's topical. Um, but I'd, I'd like to look at look for Planet Nine the other way around as well. Uh, so, is it possible to examine Fred's survey data on stellar radial velocities for an unexpected blue hump? in the data, in a region, so that um, a gentle blue shift in the background stars would indicate that the telescope is being pulled towards them unexpectedly. And I think that this would be a fraction of the tug something in the region of the Earth would get from uh, the gas and ice giants, not to mention the moon, the the travel of the Earth around the Sun and then travel of the Sun through uh, through its orbit around the centre of the galaxy. But if it's compared with uh, the blue shift of, of stars 20 or 30 degrees away, uh, there could be a difference if there's a, a planet nine out there giving us a pull. So um, what do you think of that mm. one, Fred? Um, so, uh, the, the, you know, the gravitational effect of Planet Nine um, on, on the, actually the rest of the solar system is, in, in, when you're thinking about what you're describing, it's infinitesimally small compared with the normal differences in the radial velocities of stars that we see just because of the rotation of the galaxy. So this was all <clears throat> looked at in the 1920s and 30s, if I remember, by Jan Oort. Uh, of Oort cloud fame. He, he's the guy who proposed this cloud of comets. But he also looked at the speeds of stars um, in the solar neighbourhood and deduced from that that you can actually tell that the galaxy is rotating because, you know, when you look along different lines of sight, the characteristic um, rotation of the galaxy imprints itself on those velocities. Uh, of course, stars have their own, what we call peculiar velocities as well, their, their own speed that's sort of superimposed on the galactic rotation, a bit like galaxies do on the Hubble flow. Um, so, uh, but any acceleration that will be due to Planet Nine will be, I think, immeasurable on, on the kind of scale. We, we do look, um, nowadays, uh, velocities can be detected, which are far less than walking speed. They're centimetres per second. And those are the techniques that are used when you look for planets in orbit around other stars. But they're with very specialised equipment. You don't do large-scale surveys with those. Uh, so um, I don't think there's anything that would reveal it. If, if an object... Uh, the, the way we're going to find Planet Nine, if it's there, is by its, its motion across the line of sight which will be very, very slow. Uh, and so that's the difficulty. You're looking at these star fields and you're looking for something whose movement is only detectable after a couple of months or something like that, mm. Uh, mm. even more perhaps. 
but that's that's the way it will probably be found, and it may never be found. And just to tie up a few loose ends there, some people think that planet if Planet Nine is there, it's not actually a planet at all. It's a primordial black hole um, that is having this effect on pulling these orbits of the trans-Neptunian objects, uh, but it's not really a planet, so we'd never see it. <laughs> so it might still be there and be completely invisible. We don't know why wow. primordial black holes exist. They're black holes that may have been created in the Big Bang, probably by mm. quantum fluctuations in nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. All right. Uh, got a few different strands together and comes <laughs> yeah. deeper into the mire. <laughs> In any way, in any case, it can't be a planet, can it? Because its uh, its orbit is so slow, it could no way have cleared its uh, its orbit of other bodies. Uh, yeah, that's a good a good uh, a good question. Actually, um, it it may it you know it could even have its own Trojan asteroids um, like Jupiter and Saturn do. But actually, hmm. it's not Jupiter and Saturn; it's Jupiter and uh, Neptune. I think. Anyway. Another meander, sorry. No, Go on, it's Andrew. all good. It's all good. Meandering is what we do. Rescue us. We're very good at it. Um, how are we going for time? I, you, have you got one more quick question, Russell? I do. And this is, uh, this is about out-of-zodiac out of telescopes. Telescopes that I thought are, you were going to talk astrology there. I nearly panicked. Positioned out of the zodiac. Okay, so the idea is we seem to have trouble seeing... Uh, city killer sized asteroids because they're small, relatively small, and can be lost in the zodiacal light. It also takes a while to get a fix on these and plot their course. Uh, so maybe in the future we could orbit three telescopes, three telescopes at uh, equidistant around the sun in a solar polar orbit, which takes them right out of the, out of the zodiac to overcome these limitations. Three would guarantee that two were always clear of the zodiac if they were equidistant uh, or the plane of the solar system. And three uh, could be used for 3D interferometry, uh, quickly determining uh, the position and the velocity. Uh, the arrangement would also be good for astrometry, I would say. I know this uh, would be expensive in years away, but uh, would it be worthwhile, Fred? Yeah, actually, um, that, that's a, a great suggestion. People have, have talked about things like that. But what the, 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 there's a sort of consensus on this, but there isn't a spacecraft yet planned for it. But um, one possibility that would probably help a lot with exactly the kind of near-Earth objects that you're talking about, the ones that come to us out of the sun effectively in the plane of the ecliptic, um, it, if you put a, a spacecraft at the Sun's second Lagrange point, the L2 point, that's the point between, I beg your pardon, no, it's the L1 point, not the L2 point. The L1 point, it's the point between the Sun and the Earth where the gravitational force is balanced. And so there's that stable point there. Uh, and if you put a telescope there looking towards the Earth with a very wide field of view, uh, then you've, you've got a good chance of seeing things, partly because you, you're always seeing your objects in the full glare of the sun, uh, you know, they're being back illuminated um, mm. by the sun being behind you in the in the spacecraft, you know, not, not, not humans, but um, robotic spacecraft. So it's, uh, it's uh, one of the ways, there is a 
foundation, I think, which is trying to raise money uh, to set up a facility like that. And that will be great. Um, the three spacecraft equidistant, and they would also probably have to be at Lagrange points, but different ones, um, would be the Rolls-Royce solution. Uh, but the you know one in between ourselves and the sun would be a great step towards seeing these smaller objects, exactly the ones you're talking about, 15 metres across that would, you know, would damage a city like uh, Chelyabinsk in uh, in Russia back in 2013, uh, that kind of thing. We, we're really not well um, warned against at the moment, although the things like PANSTARS and the other near-Earth object uh, facilities do an incredible job. Some of the objects have picked up are only two or three metres in diameter. Uh, and they, you know, they just disappear into space. But it's um, So things are improving. But something like a, a spacecraft, and any other spacecraft, will be great. So um, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. 360 comes into my mind, but that might be a completely different foundation altogether. But it's something like that that's looking at this possibility. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Rusty. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, just thanks, Rusty. You've got a Thank you've you. got a, a great mind. It was really good to sort of um, get it from the horse's mouth, if you like, uh, in terms of, of, of what what's puzzling you and and some of the theories and ideas you've come up with. Fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Uh, so uh, sit back, relax, take a breath. The hard part's over for you. Go back to sleep. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, thanks for being a part of the Space Nuts podcast, uh, which you are listening to and watching with Andrew Dunkley, Fred Watson and Rusty Palmer. Thanks for having me. Space Nuts. Welcome back. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast, episode 240, with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. And our special guest today is Rusty Palmer from WA, which is on the other side of Australia. It's from where I'm sitting, it's that way to my right, which means I'm facing south. Is that right? Yeah, it would be. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Um, yes, uh, and it's good to have Russell along. He's asked some really good uh, questions. Astute. I like that word. Uh, now, a reminder, too, if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, you can do that by logging on to the Space Nuts Facebook page. Just uh, do a search for Space Nuts Podcast on Facebook and uh, join us there. We've, we've got a... a, a a, a lot of followers there now. We're really building a, a really big follow. I think it's somewhere around two and a half thousand people that are on our Facebook page now. So um, please join them and become part of that uh, community. Be you can also join the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook, which is a group that was created by Space Nuts, uh, Space Nuts listeners. So you can all chat to each other and uh, fire off some questions and uh, answer each other's questions, come up with theories and ideas. And uh, I love the I love the way you police everything. Uh, sometimes we'll get an infiltrator in there that um, is trying to I don't know sell watermelons. Uh, generally dealt with rather quickly, I must say. <laughs> fascinating to watch but um anyway uh it, we're on just about every social media platform of course uh we'd love to add to our youtube numbers as well so if you prefer to watch uh as well as listen um find us on youtube space nuts podcast um it's all sorts of options uh and thank you for supporting the space nuts podcast in whatever way you do and and for listening to us um our numbers are just growing and we we are just so um humbled by the support so thank you very much 
Now, to our next question, Fredo, this comes from Martin in... Now, here we go. When I was growing up, I lived near a dam we called Chichester Dam. Now, is it Chichester or Chichester? It's Chichester, Andrew. Okay. (laughs) I'm writing from Chichester, uh, Chichester, which is on the south coast of England and also the birthplace of astronaut Tim Peake. I've been thinking about the ancient light that reaches the Earth and allows us to see back in time to the early universe. Will our ability to see back in time reduce as light from the early universe travels past us? Or maybe if the universe is infinite and expanding, is there light from the early universe that will never reach us? Hope that makes sense. Thanks for a great podcast. Martin. Thank you, Martin. Oh, ancient light. Where's it going? What's it doing? Are we, have we seen it all? Will it disappear? Will we all end up in total blackness and never wake up? What's going to happen? All of those, Andrew. Oh, great. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, Martin's right um, that uh, th- th- because the universe is, is expanding um, and we think its expansion is increasing, ever increasing, that's been demonstrated by, uh, you know, the many, many um, observations uh, in recent years since 1998 mm-hmm. when it was first observed by people like uh, Brian Schmidt and others. I'm sorry, there's a truck reversing outside my door. Fred lives next to a veterinary surgery and they're probably taking away a a horse that didn't make it. Do you know, that's exactly what that truck does. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) Not usually horses, but smaller animals. Oh, dear, dear. I feel bad now. Um, Between you and me, Andrew, we call... The, the delightful gentlemen who do that, and we call them the body snatchers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, oh, that's, that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, all right. R.I.P. <laughs> Back to the universe. <laughs> Talk about the sublime to the ridiculous. Mm. Uh, or maybe the other we way We just around. turned Fido into a dog star. <laughs> oh, lovely. Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> Well, because the universe's expansion is accelerating, <clears throat> there will be a time in the distant future when, yeah, we won't see most of what's around us. Uh, it will, the light will never reach us, exactly as Martin suggested. Uh, but there is already a part of the early universe that we can't see, uh, and that is what lies beyond the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is what I call the cosmic wallpaper. It's that background to the universe that is the flash of the Big Bang. You're looking so far back in time. You're seeing back to a time when the universe was still glowing brightly. Now, beyond that, there is more universe. Um, And it may be, as Martin says, it may even be infinite. We actually don't know the answer to that question. But we know that there's a horizon beyond which we can't see, uh, and lots of universe beyond it. Uh, and so, yes, the answer is that there are bits of the universe that we will never see, which is why you sometimes hear the expression, the observable universe, because that's the bit that we can see. Okay. Um, we talked about this fairly recently. What percentage of the universe can we actually see? Well, we don't know because we don't know how big it is. <laughs> Oh, that's true. So yeah. you, can't, you can't put a percentage on it. And it well, we can know, see 100% of what we can see, but not even that. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Other things, but, uh, yeah, we don't know how much is beyond that. That's one of the great things. It's all about, it's what um, Ross, Rusty was talking about earlier, 
It's about the inflation, the inflationary period of the universe within the first 10 to the minus 32 of a second uh, took it from being the size of a hair to the size of a galaxy in that length of time. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a reasonably well-established phenomenon. Uh, it's the only way to explain certain aspects of this microwave background radiation. Eventually, we might see the gravitational wave signal of that as well. So, um, the yeah, the the the, um, the expansion period is when the universe got big, and that's why we think there's a lot more of it beyond what we can see. <clears throat> and, and what do we think might be out there? Just more galaxies, more of the more same. Yeah. More of the same. Yeah, it's all the same. It's a boring yeah. place. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you, Martin. Hope that helped. Uh, let's uh, go on to our final question for this episode 240 of the Space Nuts podcast. This one comes from Sandy in Melbourne, who, uh, when looking up at the International Space Station, wonders why it blinks. Hi, Fred and Andrew. This is Sandy Fernando from Melbourne, Victoria. First of all, great show. I only recently started listening after my brother recommended it. Now I'm totally hooked, to the point where I've started going through your back catalogue while I'm waiting for the new episodes. I have two questions. When the ISS transits across our sky, I have noticed it blinks out. This usually happens at the end of the transit, and in particular when the visual part of the transit seems to be only covering part of the sky. Why does it blink? Is it similar to effect to the old iridium flares? <coughs> Second question. Recently, I came across an article which was talking about radio signals detected by the Parkes Radio Telescope in 2019. It was potentially a new WAF signal the article talked, talked about. Are you able to tell us more about this finding? Is it similar to the original WAF signal? Thank you, and keep up the awesome show. Really looking forward to each episode. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, great to hear from you and uh, yeah, good questions. I suppose we'll tackle uh, the first part first, which is uh, the blinking out of the ISS while observing it in orbit. Um, why would that happen, Fred? Um, so, saving energy, turning the lights off? <laughs> so, the cable drags too much on the battery? <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> the, um, of course, the the ISS shines by reflected light. It doesn't have any lights on it. Um, there are probably lights in the windows, but they wouldn't be bright enough for us to see uh, from down here. So it's the, just the reflection. And the reason why it's so bright is because it's such a big object. Um, now, I'm assuming that what uh, Sandy means is that uh, its it, it brightness increases before it disappears. Uh, that it, I, I, That's how I'm interpreting blinks out. Um, because you would expect it to disappear when it goes into the Earth's shadow, and indeed that's what does happen. Usually, it's it's not it's not just switching off. It's a it's a more you know a, a little bit of a gentler uh, decline in brightness, and that's because you're effectively going through the twilight zone um, briefly, as at uh, eight kilometres per second, it doesn't take very long to get through the Earth's. Penumbra, the outer part of the Earth's shadow, but uh, it does happen, and so there's a, a you know, a, 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 a drop in brightness that is not instantaneous, but not very doesn't take very long either. If if you can see a blink before that happens, I guess it could be uh, a reflection from one of the solar panels because the big part of the space station is these huge solar panels that it's got. They're enormous. 
and if they're tilted at the right sort of angle and they would be pointing roughly towards the sun, um, maybe uh, as it gets lower on the horizon, there might be an increase in brightness. But I have yeah, that reported I, before. That probably makes sense. It's sort of not like, not unlike the uh, the, the sun reflecting off a, a, an aircraft that you sometimes see or, or yes. a car coming towards you. It happened to us on the Murray River. A, a boat came around the corner and um, the sunlight hit the exact right part of the uh, windscreen and it looked like two headlights heading towards us just for a moment. It was, uh, yeah, that could easily be the reason. Uh, that's, yes. Um, that, uh, that's what I would put it down to. And, uh, and as, um, as Sandy says, it's a lot like the old Iridium flares. Uh, Iridium was a family of 66, I think, spacecraft that had uh, things like bathroom, full-size bathroom mirrors, which were its antennas. And when they caught the sun, you get this very bright patch of light. They're being phased out now. In fact, they may all have been deorbited because uh, mm. there's a new, a new type of Iridium that doesn't do that. But they were very spectacular. Uh, so, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Okay. So, now, the second part of the question is in regard to uh, the potential um, second wow signal detected by the Parkes Radio Telescope in 2019. I've got a feeling we talked about this. Uh, we did. Uh, mm. That's right. So it's... Um, there, there is something going on, and it's, I'm really annoyed with myself because I was talking to a colleague of mine, who I know very well, uh, who's, who's at Parks, works at Parks at the Dish. Uh, last week I was talking to him about something completely different, and I never thought to ask him about this. I wish I had done. Uh, but, yes, we, we have informal um, knowledge of some sort of detection uh, with the Parks Dish, which has, has been... You know, it's carrying out uh, one segment of the Breakthrough Listen project, which is specifically looking for alien signals, um, blasts of radio waves, uh, with either the Parkes Telescope or the Green Bank uh, Observatory in West Virginia. Uh, and they've been going since 2015, I think, uh, not really found anything. But apparently, and it was, I think, in, in 2019, um, there was an event that is of interest, uh, and it's been given uh, a name, which I can't find in my notes here. Uh, something like, um, I think it's BL, BLS or something, one, uh, breakthrough listen signal or whatever. It's at 980 megahertz, which is what the telescope was looking at at the time. And, and it's from the direction of Proxima Centauri, the nearest star. However, uh, the Parkes dish is not, it doesn't have that kind of accuracy that you can't rule out many background stars as well. Mm. So it could be coming from a lot further away. Um, uh, yes, uh, it's BLC1. I'm not sure what the C stands for in the, in the breakthrough listen signal. Uh, anyway, it is, uh, it is of interest because it looks as though there was a shift in its frequency which would, you would get as a planet goes around its parent star. And that's why people are a bit interested in it and excited. There's okay. a really good chance that it will turn out to be uh, something pretty mundane, a signal from uh, you know, a terrestrial source. But uh, as, as we understand it, um, there is a paper being written about this, which hasn't yet been published. Uh, there was a piece in the conversation uh, recently written by 
the director of the uh, Centre for Astrophysics at the University of Manchester, Michael Garrett. So he's pretty well up there in terms of the, um, uh, the, 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 the inside knowledge on this. Uh, what he says is in his conversation article uh, is that the discovery, which was reported by The Guardian but has yet to be published in a scientific journal, uh, may be the search for extraterrestrial intelligence's first bona fide candidate signal. And has been dubbed Breakthrough Listen Candidate 1 or simply BLC1. So mm. I think you've got to watch this space. Um, it's interesting. Uh, there's a really good chance that it will turn out to be something else. Uh, read the conversation article if you if you um, are interested in following it up. Uh, look up Michael Garrett uh, and the conversation, and it will take you there, and you'll find out all that we know about it. Fantastic. Thank you, Sandy. Great questions. Uh, and of course, the wow signal we've talked about before, that uh, radio signal that was received and uh, the uh, person who uh, detected it wrote wow with an exclamation mark on the on the printout, uh, hence the wow signal, which they still haven't explained, have they, Fred? No, no, the wow. no. I should have said that, sorry. No, oh, no, that's OK. It's just uh, it's one of those mysteries. Yeah, we did do a whole segment on it. Yeah. Uh, I think we talked about it um, back in 2019 when this topic first came up. But, yeah. Uh, thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Evan, for your questions. Thank you, Russell, for being a part of the show. It's been great. Yeah. It's been a pleasure and honour. Thank you. Oh, it's yeah, terrific. I uh, hope you enjoyed yourself. It's um, a little bit different on the inside, isn't it? It is. <laughs> you can see it how is. very professional we are. <laughs> yeah. I bet Rusty stops listening to us now. It's <laughs> all a lot of rubbish. Yeah. Oh, anyway, uh, that brings us to the end of another show. Uh, thanks, Rusty, again. Uh, thank you, Fred, as always. Great fun. Nice to catch up again. Always good to talk, Andrew, and thank you very much, and we'll speak soon. We will indeed. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks as always for listening to, watching and supporting the Space Nuts podcast. We'll catch you again real soon. Bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.